and something unusual happened. I went home and I was sitting down. I started to feel really sick and started to repeat to myself, you know, I'm too young to die. I don't want to die. I kept repeating it like a mantra. And then suddenly the inner voice came and said, well, who is this I that doesn't want to die? There is no I. And then it was, everything was blown open, like into an infinity. Hello and welcome to the Musing Mind podcast. Today we have Ron Purser on, who is the author of a new book that asks a really tough question. It asks if an earnestly pursued meditation practice does not fit and cannot flourish within a neoliberal capitalist society, what do we do? His book is called Mick Mindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality, and he has one foot in the contemplative world as an ordained Zen Dharma teacher, and one foot in the capitalist world as a professor of management. Ron is making a critique of the pop culture appropriation and dilution of meditation into a particular subset of mindfulness. He's making the really provocative case that the radical individualism that is at the heart of neoliberal capitalism is incompatible with the radical interdependence of what we might call contemplative ethics. This is also the first podcast episode I've ever recorded, so I hope you'll bear with me through a few audio jumps here and there. And so please enjoy my conversation with Ron Purser. So you have a book out that is doing something that I really hope to do with this podcast. Uh, your book brings together meditation and capitalism into the same conversation and is very much arguing that they have to be considered side by side, which a little more broadly is about questioning the separation between interior and personal experience and exterior social cultural dynamics. Um, but before getting into all that, I thought a fun way of going about the business of introducing yourself might be to talk a little bit about how and why you got into meditation. I know you have a couple decades of practice under your belt. So what was it that led the human being, you know, Ron Purser, in response to life to consider it a good idea to sit down and close your eyes and just breathe for a little while? Well, it's a long story, but it started when I was about 19 or 20 years old, uh, I was working in a pharmaceutical plant on night shift, a blue collar job, just before I went back to college. <laughs> and I had been very ill uh, a week or two before that with some sort of infection that was on antibiotics. And uh, I went back to work, and about four in the morning, I, did, I still wasn't feeling well, so I asked my supervisor if I could go home, which I did. And something unusual happened. I went home and I was sitting down and I started to feel really sick and started to repeat to myself, you know, I'm too young to die. Well, I don't want to die. I kept repeating it like a mantra. And then suddenly the inner voice came and said, well, who is this I that doesn't want to die? There is no I. And then it was, everything was blown open like mm -hmm. into an infinity. I had this like really unexpected 
mystical experience, I guess you could call it. Yeah. And I didn't know what hit me. Uh, for weeks, I was like, uh, I couldn't sleep and um, felt very disoriented. It lost like about 10 pounds. And I was like, I have to... F- I have to really investigate what what, what happened, and <laughs> I started exploring various books and things. But it wasn't until oh, I would say my late twenties that I happened to stumble across uh, a particular teaching by a Tibetan Lama by the name of Tarthang Tuku, who wrote a book called "Time, Space, and Knowledge: A New Vision of Reality." Mm-hmm. I had it on my shelf for a couple of years, but it was really daunting. And uh, happened to pick it up. I was in uh, Northern California at the time uh, in my undergraduate program. And I saw that, uh, wait a minute, uh, the author here has a center in Berkeley. And so I started taking courses there at the Tibetan Enigma Institute uh, in Berkeley. And so that was uh, kind of the uh, the gateway, I think. Wow. Uh, and it, uh, I haven't looked back since. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've been... Uh, uh, fairly devoted to uh, that particular unusual teaching, um, which incidentally he's very ad- adamant that it's not Buddhist. It's uh, kind of an original vision that came to him, and took him five, ten years to to write it up and turn it into a book. And he's come out with like seven or eight sequels since then. Wow! Yeah, I've I've heard stories like that. I know they're sometimes called hard enlightenment uh, in the Zen tradition. One of my early meditation influences, Ramana Maharshi, had a very similar experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a teenager, just kind of sitting in his living room, and he was overtaken by this feeling uh, from inside of his stomach. It felt like a very deep sickness, even like a rigor mortis of the body. And it was snowballing into this certainty where he, he knew, I'm going to die. And I'm going to die. And the move that he made was he asked wow. in that moment, well, who is it that's going to die? What is it that dies? And you know, he experienced this kind of breaking wow. open of that I that he identified with. And so he lay, he lay down in the middle of his living room and kind of invited the death as a, an exploratory experience. And he resolved to let it occur and, and feel the whole thing unfold. And afterwards, uh, he sat yeah. back up, disoriented, but with a, a definite shift kind of in his, in his perspective or the, the texture of his consciousness. And uh, over the next few days, you know, he felt very out of place and wanted to continue exploring. And so he hopped on a train and traveled down to uh, Tiruvannamalai in southern India, where there was a holy mountain he'd read about. And he essentially sat there for the rest of his life meditating. Um, for years and years, someone eventually found him in a cave and felt very clearly he was a holy man or he was onto something. And they built him an ashram, you know, at the base of the mountain. And, and that's where he remained. But um, there's also another direction. You know, if you look at the same story, but kind of in the Western cultural context, um, I'm thinking of Robert Persig, right, who wrote the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. He has an interview in The Guardian, let me see if I can pull it up here, where I remember he's describing uh, the same experience of of hard enlightenment. And I, I have a quote here. He says, I could not sleep and I could not stay awake. I just sat there cross-legged in the room for three days. All sorts of volitions started to go away. My wife started getting upset at me sitting there, got a little insulting. Pain disappeared, cigarettes burned down in my fingers. 
But then a kind of chaos set in. Suddenly I realized that the person who had come this far was about to expire. I was terrified and curious as to what was coming. I felt so sorry for this guy I was leaving behind. It was a separation. This is described in the psychiatric canon as catatonic schizophrenia. It is called in the Zen Buddhist canon, hard enlightenment. I have never insisted on either. In fact, I switch back and forth depending on who I am talking to. Right, so Persig was just sitting in his apartment, staring at the wall, pissing himself for three days. And, uh, but he didn't have a mountain you know, to go to afterwards. He just had a Western culture that looked at him funny. And so he remained in this very unsettled relationship to his experience. Well, that is interesting because um, I had an aftershock like that too. Mm. It's interesting that uh, I was sitting, I don't tell people this that often, but I was sitting in the bathroom when this happened. <laughs> and uh, um, I guess I was in there an awfully long time because um, I remember my father was pounding on the door. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, this is after, after the experience and he says, well, it's about time. <laughs> and I and I said, yeah, you know what? It is all about time, because <laughs> it was like a timeless experience. <laughs> and what was it that brought your meditation practice into the same discussion as neoliberal capitalism? Right, because your book focuses on the claim that neoliberal capital capitalism and a deeply realized uh, contemplative ethics cannot coexist. So what is it that led you to to treat these two in relation to one another? I think what really triggered it was when I saw um, mindfulness programs being introduced into corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I had been a, uh, even though I, I teach uh, in the College of Business Department of Management, I had done some consulting practice management uh, training, organizational development, uh, that sort of thing for about 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And I became very disenchanted with it because we were actually at the time, um, practice that I was involved in, in terms of the behavioral science, uh, was trying to redesign organizations so that they would be more democratic, uh, Mm. more worker controlled, employee, um, uh, involvement, employee participation. And it was a very systemic approach. We were really trying to change the entire structure of the organization. We had some limited success with that in pockets uh, within a large corporation like Procter & Gamble or General Electric. Mm, yeah. But um, when the corporate powers uh, figured out what we were up to, even though we, we showed that there were improvements, they were threatened by it and basically withdrew support. Uh-huh. Um, it was too much of a threat to the center of power within the corporation. Um, and that that really kind of opened my eyes to see that, wait, there's a really much deeper institutional problem. Um, but it was interesting that throughout management uh, history, you see that um, a lot of these interventions are designed to um, – uh, harness the subjectivity of the worker to align them with the interest of capital. Mm-hmm. So I was always suspicious of this for a long time. And when uh, I saw it happening in the corporate mindfulness movement in my own backyard here in Silicon Valley, right. uh, you know, I think these two uh, these two domains uh, 
you know, my, my Buddhist uh, studies and, and practice for 35, 40 years, and my uh, professional role as a, uh, a teacher of management, those, those converged in terms of my critical um, uh, interest. Right. And that's when I became, um, you know, I, I really had to educate myself quite a bit because I was no expert. I'm not a political scientist, so mm-hmm. I didn't really know a whole lot about what the ideology of neoliberal, <laughs> neoliberalism was at the time. But the more I dove into it and the more that I, you know, started to study, uh, you know, bits and pieces of Michel Foucault's work on governmentality. Mm-hmm. Then it, it, I really, I really saw the, uh, I really saw the alignment, you know, the conjunction between um, the individualistic uh, approach to mindfulness and the individualizing um, ideology of neoliberalism. Yeah, that's something I I wanted to ask you about before we go any further, um, to set down some basic definitions of what neoliberalism is, because it's, it's so central to your claim but it's also such an abstraction and it's such a slippery idea. We use it for so many different things. Um, so I just wanted to check in and kind of set the common ground of what you came to define neoliberalism as. Well, you know, it started out as basically, um, uh, if I'm, if I'm correct, that it, it actually started out as a way to, uh, they were really afraid of communism at the time. Right. Uh, the thinkers that were, uh, uh, behind this, that was quite a while ago. But it turned into a social philosophy, kind of a a radical uh, social philosophy of radical autonomy. Uh, obviously, at the time of Margaret Thatcher, right? Um, her famous saying that there's no alternative, right? There's no mm. alternative to yeah to uh, market uh, uh, free markets during the same time Reagan was coming up with and then Reagan follows followed suit right after that yeah. very shortly after that to 1979 1980 and uh, there's a famous saying by Thatcher is um, economics are the method but the object is to change the heart and soul mm. I think ooh wow that's uh. <laughs> and I, I was like okay is mindfulness serving that purpose is it uh is it uh, helping change the heart and soul? Right. Um, and you know when when you see the mindfulness industry uh, booming, you know it's um, the warm reception uh, of the market to, to mindfulness industry is a one point one billion dollar industry, and the mm-hmm. wellness industry is about four billion. You know that should give us pause. I think to say, hey, what's what's really happening here? Um, right. And then uh, Pierre Bur- Burdeau. Uh, he has a a good definition of neoliberalism is anything that you know any program for destroying collective uh, structures that uh, get in the way of uh, free free market. Right. Um, so that's kind of a broad you know uh, uh, kind of uh, 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 overview of it. But I think what it does something much more um, much more subtle in terms of. Um, how the neoliberal ethos uh, redefines the nature of human beings. Mm-hmm. And um, because competition is everything in, the, in, a, in a free market society, um, and because uh, the role of culture or collectivities, community, are downplayed or even denigrated, to, then 
individuals are sort of left on their own as atomized individuals to become entrepreneurs of themselves, so to be, right. so to speak. Um, instead of working against subjectivity, uh, it works through subjectivity. Mm-hmm. So it, it appears as if you're making free choices on your own in such a way that you become, you discipline yourself in order to maintain your mental capital or to enhance your value in the marketplace as, in, as an entrepreneur. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, and there's a lot that goes on in terms of when the collective structures are denigrated, then um, we, we, we kind of fall back on ourselves. We get the message that, uh, that we're completely responsible for our well-being. Yeah. Um, and uh, in this sense, that's exactly the message that the mindfulness movement is, has been communicating. Mm-hmm. That, you know, happiness is a skill that we can, uh, we could train our brains or hack our brains. It's just like going to the gym where we can um, exercise a muscle. We have to train our brain. So we become sort of uh, self-contained individuals that uh, despite, you know, any kind of social economic conditions we may be in, doesn't matter because um, we're fully autonomous and we, you know, through these practices, we can become happy and we can become more successful. Uh, and so uh, it's totally aligned. I think this is this this rhetoric uh, is totally aligned with the, the, the neoliberal uh, ethos. Yeah, uh, I really enjoyed you know, this part of of the research of your book. And as I was looking for myself into it, that this layered understanding of neoliberalism came through, where on the surface, it's this socioeconomic ideology, right? A, a bundle of policies and attitudes and beliefs, all acting on this kind of uncompromising faith in free markets, in competition, and broad spectrum deregulation, right? This, this belief that free markets produce more desirable outcomes than human planning in all elements of society. But on a deeper level, and this is where Foucault's work on power dynamics is really fascinating, um, socioeconomic frameworks are never neutral to people's subjectivity. It always imparts an ideology. It always imparts a, a kind of mental framework. Um, so the, the neoliberal faith in individualism is communicated and transferred through its policy structures into the minds of the citizens or the people in it. Um, And this is where it it comes into direct conflict with the interdependence of contemplative ethics, right? This kind of irreconcilable conflict, it gets into meditation between individualism and interdependence. Right, right. That's absolutely right. And um, it also deflects attention then uh, away from uh, alternative uh, discourse or solutions that would place attention more on the political and economic structures. Right. Um, and, uh, and you see that not just with mindfulness, I mean, the whole, ther- whole therapeutic culture and self-help, mm-hmm. self-improvement, um, genres, uh, uh, pretty much do the same thing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 I talk about an experiment I did a couple of years back where I Googled, uh, mindfulness in schools or mindfulness in prisons or mindfulness in corporations, uh, and almost every time when you when you looked at the images, 
They were always of a singular individual with, you know, completely isolated with their eyes closed. Right. And, um, and you know, that's kind of a cultural representation that, uh, that really reflects uh, also the neoliberal sort of uh, dominant uh, notion that, you know, we, t- we should take charge of our own self-care. Right. And we, I mean, it, I'm not saying that self-care is useless. I'm just saying that it's been um, uh, captivated by more the neoliberal kind of ideology. Self-care can be uh, turned into a form of resistance as well, but that's not the messages that we're getting. Yeah, you, uh, you quoted a really fantastic term that I think speaks to the impasse we're at between meditation and neoliberal capitalism. And I, I forget who the quote belongs to, but the phrase was the magnitude of the Dharma. And I loved that, you know, that there's this enormity to meditation that isn't making it through the refracted form of mindfulness that we're getting through pop culture. Yeah, I don't, I don't really remember where I said that, but I think <laughs> that, um, uh, well, yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, what we see in the, in the mindfulness movement is um, not exactly what I would say the deepest forms of Buddhist practice. Um, uh, it's therapeutic mindfulness. It's clinical mindfulness. Uh, it's an instrumental, uh, instrumentalized uh, technique or tool which has been uh, extracted or um, strip-mined from its uh, roots within the Buddhist tradition. Now, yeah. I'm not trying to say that therapeutic mindfulness is useless or it doesn't provide benefits to people. It does. Um, but to then equate mindfulness with the entire uh, Buddhist tradition, and Buddhism isn't monolithic either, but to equate that is, to me, um, it's just ridiculous. Right. Um, what happened is that um, we basically saw the utilitarian value of of mindfulness, um, but to make it more widely accessible so it can appeal to secular audiences, they had to mystify it mm-hmm. and basically cover up the fact that it was selectively, very selectively, a small set of practices were extracted Um and uproot it from the forms of life in which mindfulness was embedded. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like any other hot commodity that it's been refashioned uh, to accommodate to the needs of the market. Right. And once you do that, it, it uh, becomes, when it becomes so market friendly, uh, then you've really uh, covered over the potential for it to, to offer critical reflection on, um, the deeper causes of suffering, not not only within yourself, but within uh, the whole uh, uh, whole society, the systemic and structural and collective uh, um, larger institutional uh, causes of stress in the body pol- in the body politic. Yeah, and that leads right into a question that I've been sitting with from your critique. Your critique. Um, on first glance, your book seems to critique the, the pop culture dilution of mindfulness, mindfulness, and many meditation practitioners are, are well on board with that. Uh, but there is a, a deeper critique that I think you're making, or at least a really difficult question that you're raising, which is whether or not there exists an 
interior dimension of conscious experience that does not depend upon conditions, right? Whether there's some interior domain that remains unaffected or more fundamental or prior uh, to all conditions. And I'm thinking of someone like Sam Harris here, whose excellent book on meditation, Waking Up, said something like this, that uh, meditation is a practice for cultivating a sense of well-being that occurs before anything else, which is basically an unconditional sense of well-being that is disembedded from the sociopolitical and historical context that it's arising out of. So how do you think about this relationship between interior and exterior experience and the the boundary or not so boundary between them. Well, uh, yeah, I think this is a good point that we've swung the pendulum. The pendulum has swung too far over to the private interiority uh, of uh, supposedly persons, and so by doing that, uh, you know, and you by reframing it as just a skill. Uh, that uh, we can uh, achieve personal liberation independent of uh, any kind of historical, social, political context. But I think it's a very contested notion that um, we have access to some pure consciousness that uh, is completely uh, uh, untainted by uh, any kind of language or any kind of uh, uh, historical or I'm not so sure that it sounds very very perennialist to me. Right. I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of my own experience. Um, intellectually, I'm I'm leaning towards there being no distinction between interior and exterior. Right. That that all interior experience is somehow tangled up in conditional dynamics, but. I've certainly had experiences, right, whether in meditation retreat or certainly during psychedelic work, where it has felt like I drop in or return to this kind of untainted uh, interior experience, a kind of baseline or fundamental bare space of consciousness upon which everything else is layered. It feels like Mm -hmm. the bottommost layer. And so phenomenologically, it feels like there's this uncontaminated space. I know uh, Jack Cornfield calls it pure awareness, but yeah, phenomenology isn't all that trustworthy, right? And I wonder if even though it can feel like there's this unconditional conscious space that underlies everything else, if the cultural dynamics are still operating on that and mediating that experience beneath our ability to perceive that immediation, Right. Uh, just like the unconscious is mm-hmm. always doing to the conscious mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, um, you know, like some neuroscientist. Uh, I, I can't remember the study. Um, it was looking at like um, neuroscientists who uh, actually took some sort of psychedelics themselves, mm-hmm. and um, when they explained their experience, they explained it in <laughs> surprisingly neurological terms. Right. Um. Uh, whereas, like a, a Peruvian shaman would explain it in completely different terms, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so it's, I think it's really hard to uh, to separate out some sort of uh, un, untainted 
spiritual, whatever you want to call it, pure, pure awareness. Right. Um, this idea of direct experience is also tricky. Yeah. I know there's an idea in, um, in John Rawls, the old political philosophy, and he called them, uh, he called them basic structures that you know, social constructions that operate on us and seem to us as if they're parts of nature, because that's how basic and underlying they are. Um, oh, yeah. but, yeah. but they're not, they're constructions, but since they're so deeply embedded and exist on kind of longer timeframes than what we're, than what we perceive on, on a day-to-day basis that we don't see them. And I feel like that would, that would apply to the same thing that we might feel, you know, in those moments I'm talking about, I might feel like I'm in some kind of pure state, but it's informed by these kind of basic structures that whether or not I see them, they're acting on it. And this reminds me of guys like Marshall McLuhan or Felix Guattari, right? Guys who aren't really in the contemplative circuit, but are still pointing to that same fundamental dialogue that's always going on between interior and exterior experience, right? McLuhan's uh, referred to his work as a study of the psychic consequences of our technological and media environments. And Guattari does the same thing with different words. He uses the term uh, mental ecology or subjectivity and says that our social and material ecologies are always conditioning and and even creating that subjectivity um yeah they're entangled they're entangled and it gets really freaky with guitar especially with his work with Deleuze. they they came up with all these wild metaphors that they they get a lot of crap for because they're they're honestly just strange but one of them was uh the deterritorialized factory and this is like hitting me in my nightmares now where he he talks about mass production and how you know mass production of goods and services brought on modernity and it kind of sparked this culture industry and so on. But as things progressed, that the factories are no longer physical, that they've embedded into the cultural matrix itself, which allowed the mass production now to to operate on the immaterial. So that subjectivity is entering on that same kind of mass production line, right? And and that's what I think of in your critique with what neoliberalism kind of did with with mindfulness is it took it and it kind of fashioned it to the pre-existing blueprints it had and gave out this thing that ostensibly is, is different than revolutionary. But like you're saying, if you actually look into it, it's, it's the opposite of revolutionary. It, it creates pacified subjects within that same system. Right. I mean, it goes back to Jeremy uh, Bentham, um, where um, there's always this quest, you know, among utilitarian thinkers, right, to sort of uh, the calculated management of life that we can... Uh, quantify and um, mm-hmm. basically uh, find ways to um, tap into the uh, the psyches um, you know the the interesting uh, there's an interesting theorist byung child Han um, and he has the term uh, uh, psychopolitics mm-hmm. uh, where exactly I think that's what you're saying it goes beyond just disciplinary power this is like a way of harnessing our psyches but I think you're absolutely right that uh, you know, it's it's like penetrating into our very psyche <laughs> as a way of uh, uh, harnessing more, uh, extracting more from mental, our mental capital, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, there's there's also this idea really emerging now that meditation is not enough on its own, right? We see this in like highly realized meditation teachers who are sexually abusing their students or even in meditation being used in predatory or non-wholesome environments like, like predatory finance. And one of the responses has been to pair meditation up with something like therapy, 
right? We're hearing stories uh, like Michael Taft's conversation with Tuladasa about mm-hmm. highly realized meditation teachers who are undergoing therapy themselves and finding emotional mm-hmm. processing that they had not encountered otherwise, right, through meditation. So even contemplatives are coming to see meditation as just this one vector of development. And offering therapy as another is great, right? The idea of expanding the kind of repertoire and and approaches of development. But I also wonder if it falls victim to the same critique you're making, which is to locate the problem and solution entirely within the individual, right? We're now telling people to both watch their breath and get therapy, but still aren't really pulling in the role of socioeconomic pressures upon that subjective experience, right? It's still the individual's responsibility to uh, address their lives and however they're feeling is their own fault. Uh, So how do we think about moving beyond this paradigm of privatizing human experience and even human development? I think you're, yeah, I think you're referring to like spiritual bypassing. Right, right, right. yeah, where the we kind of conflate meditation with therapy. A lot of people uh, come to meditation or mindfulness thinking that okay, uh, I'll do a mindfulness course or or or, pra- or use an app to uh, I'm experiencing anxiety or got some emotional problems and I'll try to feel better. Um, and but when it's used in a way that um, you're really trying to sidestep or uh, <laughs> push away these issues, their wounds, psychological wounds, trauma, whatever it may be, then that's problematic. But yeah, I think that what one of the issues, you know, most therapy, well, evidence, so-called evidence-based uh, interventions, and even uh, insurance companies now, it's, you know, it's uh, brief therapy, right? It's not yeah. psychoanalysis. <laughs> and it's, uh, so both mindfulness uh, and most thera- therapeutic interventions are, are, are kind of uh, uh, beholden to the biomedical paradigm. And um, when it's when it's kind of uh, captured within the biomedical uh, paradigm, then you know it's it's really based on individualized interventions, um, and so it's hard to get beyond that once you once you, when you stay within that sort of uh, framework and the biomedical conception of mental health, right? Um, which is very individualized, biological indicators, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I, I think that there's a movement afoot, uh, and, um, I think there's a movement afoot to see that, look, uh, we really have to look at the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. We can't just rely on these biological, individualized, therapeutic approaches. Right. Uh, and that requires a much more holistic view. Yeah. So we have to start looking at issues and like structural variables, who has access to healthcare? Who has access to quality schools and education? Who, did they have people have a living wage? You know, mm-hmm. uh, do they have safe and meaningful work employment? You know, basic living conditions. Right. People live, and um, so, um, and this is a policy question. This is a kind of a macro uh, policy question. I think. Um, yeah. Um. But I think we have to see, you know, one of the things I think we have to see is how stress has been depoliticized mm-hmm. in, in neoliberal uh, capitalist economies. This whole right. idea of healthism, you know, healthism is this notion that uh, 
basically uh, is presumed stress as an individual's concerned. It's disconnected from the social and political spheres. And that's why a whole industry is formed around a stress subject. Stress is sort of portrayed as uh, not making the right lifestyle choices. Everything is reduced to like a biological narrative, mm -hmm. explanatory narrative. And it, it presents stress as inevitable. You know, it's just a natural given. This is right. just the way things are. Right. Um, and, and if that's the case, then, uh, you know, uh, if stress is a natural given, then, well, I guess we have to mindful up. <laughs> I guess we have to figure out how to adapt to the yeah. to the to the conditions. Right. Um, so it's always the subject that has to con to adapt to the given right conditions. You gave a you gave an example of it in your book that I thought was really interesting when you were talking about Eric Fromm with the psychotherapists coming out of Vienna. How they they began as a bunch of Marxists, right? Interested in yeah. socioeconomic reform. And they, they lost uh, their, I think you called it original radicalism, and instead turned into just creating like well-adjusted subjects. Um, right. Yeah, especially when um, psychoanalysis uh, became Americanized, then it really lost it. Right. So was that, is that when that happened, when they kind of came from Vienna into the U.S.? It kind of... Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think so. Yeah. I think so. I'm not really a historian on that. But yeah, Eric Fromm is great. I really like... Uh, his writings and mm -hmm. um, he talks about, you know, we can't, uh, he talks about the pathology of normalcy. I love that term. <laughs> that, you know, our, our jobs uh, if, as psychotherapists or psychoanalysts should not be to adjust people to a state of uh, normalcy, so called normalcy. Right. Um, and he saw really that um, uh, therapy uh, needed to be in a dialectical relationship. Or, or or dialogical relationship with uh, social and political concerns, and that that goes right back to C. Wright Mills, you know, right? Uh, the sociological imagination, where he talks about that our personal troubles are never connected to public issues, right, right, right. And there's that, that there's that disconnect, um, and I think that's part of the the dominant discourse that we see uh, when you say happiness is a skill that mm -hmm. doesn't require any external. Uh, independent of any external conditions, I think then perpetuating that sort of uh, discourse. You quoted from as, as saying, uh, the aim of therapy is often that of helping the person to be better adjusted to existing circumstances, which to my mind just screamed uh, the Krishnamurti quote, which is when he says, um, it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Yeah, I love that quote. Yeah. I love that quote. Yeah, because then what happens too is, you know, we haven't, you get into this kind of uh, obsessive self-surveillance, mm -hmm. uh, where the person then, you know, when they when they accept that message and and internalize it, then uh, they self-discipline themselves. They're constantly uh, self-monitoring and form of self-surveillance. Um, right. And this is how power operates right through the subjectivity of the individual's free will. Mm. And and that's what's so. In, um, uh, I don't know, uh, insidious is the term. I don't know, right. but it's so. When you think about, um, not necessarily what to do, but you know, so we have this mm -hmm. situation, this landscape we painted. One of the things that that come to mind for me are, for example, Scandinavian countries. You look at, uh, oh, you know, yeah. Denmark, Norway, wherever you like. What what I've seen, what they've done, they're they're totally capitalist. But, you yeah. know, they hike up taxes and they have these really broad social programs um, that are 
built to kind of strengthen these, these collective structures or at least kind of social cohesion in a way they take these measures pretty seriously. Is that something mm-hmm. that when you, when you were digging in, is that a kind of model forward that stuck out to you or does that still seem as kind of participating in the same paradigm that we need, that you're saying we need to kind of move beyond? It's probably uh, definitely an improvement in the right direction <laughs> um, <laughs> because then yeah. we're, we're dealing with, we're dealing more with the structural uh, and systemic uh, uh, policies, which uh, provide the supportive communal context for health. And so this whole uh, emphasis on individualization probably is not as prominent in those countries, I would imagine, right? Yeah. This uh, the Scandinavian model forwards, right? Hiking up taxes that mainly draw from wealthy entities to provide broader social programs. I can imagine that, right? I can picture it. It's a coherent and plausible next step. Um, demographic differences aside, that's the usual main knock against this, right? Is it's easy in a place that's homogenous and small, but you get to the U.S. and it's a whole other ball game. Um, but there's also this discourse growing around post or anti-capitalism, and I don't think the Scandinavian model fits into that, right? Since I, I do think it still abides by the basic tenets of capitalism. So I'm trying to imagine what post-capitalism actually means. Like, what is the step beyond the Scandinavian model that actually moves beyond capitalism? And is the way to get there through the Scandinavian model? Is it through democratic socialism? Or is it a different trajectory altogether? I don't know. You know, I, uh, you, know you think about climate change and climate, uh, climate crisis, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, uh, you know, I think even social democratic countries are still based on uh, gross domestic product and growth. Mm-hmm, right. Um, so to get to a de- degrowth uh, culture, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, I think we're talking about something post-capitalism. Right. What that looks like, I don't know. But certainly the whole social stratification of society, mm-hmm. uh, really, that's one of the, I think, key uh, issues that we have to come to terms with. It's just not sustainable. Right. The magnitude of inequity uh, globally, yeah. um, and uh, so yeah, I remember uh, you know first time I I went to Helsinki, Finland. It was in the summer, and I'm walking down the street, and I just couldn't believe how people how relaxed people were. <laughs> Maybe I was projecting. I don't think I was, but I definitely felt the difference. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you know, I have friends uh, in Finland, and you know. Their whole college education is paid for. Mm-hmm. They have a guaranteed pension. They have all this time off, uh, uh, maternity, paternal leave, all kinds of things like this child care. Right. Um, you know, do we really need a lot of mindfulness in our programs in countries like that? That'd be a good question. Yeah. One thing that, that I find so compelling about the Scandinavian model is that it's providing things that we otherwise spend time working and laboring for, right? So it's, it's almost cutting out the middleman of time spent laboring to obtain the capital we then spend on these services, right? Like healthcare, like childcare. Um, so it's really a way of freeing up or making available different relations to time. Um, it's, it's saving time that we'd have to otherwise spend working to secure these things that we need in order to participate in society. Um, even in, in the case of basic income, just money in general. So these policies are really about changing my relationship to work. Um, they, they reduce my dependency upon labor that 
I already don't find existentially valuable. Um, and, and this seems so powerful to me because, I don't know, this might be a super Marxist idea, but I think that changing the nature of work and our societal relation to labor and, and changing our, our relation to time winds up changing what it feels like to be a human being, that it, it, it's an existential shift. And, you know, maybe the grass looks greener over there from where I'm sitting, but it just seems to me that this could open up uh, ways of living that I can't even imagine from here. Yeah, yeah. And creativity then, you know, your creativity as well. Right, right, right. I know you did. I, I saw you've also previously worked on, I think you edited a book that was talking about how our, our relationship to time is changing in the network society. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, and I thought that was, that was so interesting. So I'm curious, in, when you were on that project of, of time and the network society, what, uh, what struck you about it as kind of the salient changes in, in you know, an internet, everywhere, all the time, connected kind of world? Uh, yeah, my interest in time goes back to my studies in the in Enigma Institute because of the work of Tarthang Tuku. But mm. uh, I tried to uh, let that influence my own uh, understanding of, uh, uh, you could say, uh, linear time, linear time, and our ordinary understanding of time, mm. and um, how that was accelerate being accelerated. Um, right. The buzzword back then was, uh, in, in the business uh, uh, business world, was real time technologies. Mm-hmm. You know, clicking on the Amazon uh, buy button. You know, instantaneous kind of uh, really no. And, and you know, so basically, our time horizons were being compressed. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, the spatial relief that we usually have uh, were, were were eroding and disappearing. So this this idea when a text message comes in, we feel obligated to respond to it immediately. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of a conditioning. Um, so this whole speed up, this whole uh, sense of uh, uh, digital uh, digital distraction, uh, tempor- I call them temporalities of distraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really kind of um, Driven by a momentum, a feeling of inexorable, inexorable um, sense of that time is moving right. very, very quickly. Right, um, and that that is actually um, our way of being in time is as if we're a bystander to time. Right. In other words, I'm some sort of independent subject that, when the flow of time is going by me like a river. Well, the river was wasn't moving quite as quickly, you know, uh, before uh, digital technologies. Right. Um, but once digital technologies took hold, um, it turned into a torrent, turned into a turbulent, uh, uh, unforgiving sort of uh, stream that we get caught up in. Mm-hmm. And, but you know, that's that's really just um, one way of of. Uh, of relating to time or to understanding time. So I, I, I think this is a really interesting question because um, I think there's a, you know, this is where uh, mindfulness doesn't even go. I mean, mindfulness can't even address this at all. Right. They talk about digital detox, which, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll take a, a time out, but then jump right back in the river, right. you know? Um, and, and so, you know, we really have to understand why the river is moving like that. Does it really, is it really moving like that? Is there alternative ways of, 
um, enhancing our consciousness in such a way uh, that can liberate us uh, from the limitations of, of uh, linear time and the, uh, this uh, sense of being uh, caught in the, in the, you know, because this is a form of suffering. This is kind of a really deep form of existential suffering, the fact that things are impermanent. Of course, things are impermanent, but impermanence isn't the problem per se. It's really right. our sense of being independent, uh, something that's inherently uh, substantive. In other words, relating to phenomena as actual substances, rather than everything is in flux. Well, if everything's in flux, then there's no thing that's separate from the flux. And so um, then you start to open up time in such a way that uh, you get, you, first you have to begin to see how it's set up, and particularly mm -hmm. how it's set up to create this kind of fr sense of friction. Uh, this, and because we're always jumping ahead, you know, time is, we can never experience the fulfillment because we always feel that time is moving. It's, it's almost like a, uh, uh, a force uh, that uh, we have no control over. Yeah, how do, you mentioned uh, the book that that brought you into meditation. I remember the first word was time. How does so? How does time factor into that kind of practice? Are there certain kind of techniques that you have to work with time? How does he? How does he bring that in? Oh yeah, there are uh, there are a lot of uh, exercises and imaginative, uh, you could say, thought experiments, exercises, meditation. Do you remember one off the top of your head? Uh, yeah. So uh, one of uh, is to challenge the notion that time is moving um, uh, in a forward direction. Um, so it's kind of an experiential uh, challenge. So, for example, we usually think time is moving from the past to the present to the future. Right. And um, so instead, it's like, okay, let's imagine that you're already in the future, uh, at a point in the future, and you're looking back to now. So you reverse the temporal momentum. Mm -hmm. And you could do the same from the past. Usually we're looking back at the past. But instead, you can imagine in your past looking towards the present. And, and, and the notion here is then that uh, the points in time uh, can be expanded, almost stretched out. Uh, and, and so if one person is, is, for example, on the surface of time, they're moving from point A to point B. And they're, uh, they're basically their consciousness, their thought patterns are kind of uh, already set up within that structure. Yeah. But with a more appreciation of the dynamic of time, then you begin to see there's a lot more points between point A and point B. So it becomes more elastic. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, then um, you have a little more freedom. It's not quite as friction-filled or uh, jagged. Right. You know, it's like a jagged feeling uh, of being tossed around. So um, That's cool. Uh, you know, that's, that's one example. I'm already a little um, disoriented. I'm trying to look at myself right now from the future. Yeah, it's yeah. cool though. You can feel it's, it's a, it's a total shift. So if you can, um, reverse the flow, um, uh, and it then sort of the simultaneity of time starts to present itself in some ways, you know, even unusual, like synchronicities start to happen more often. Or, uh, you know, if we're, if we learn how to, uh, see through, 
the past, present, future a live structure that we're usually caught in, that could begin to open up other uh, dimensions of time, which um, where like you just seem to know what to say or know what to do in a particular mm -hmm. moment, just comes to you. Yeah. You know, I mean, even if you think about the phrase, boy, that's you know, geniuses. They were they were quote ahead of their time. They liter they literally were. <laughs> they were somehow tapping into that. Um, that sense of genius is is time related. I think it has a relation to a different relationship to time in a way. Yeah. The the other. Let me say yeah, one more please. thing about that. Right. And one of the, I would say. Uh, one of the topics of inquiry, you know, you can think about, you know, one of the things I, uh, not problems, but limitations of mindfulness. There's not much inquiry going on. Mm. You know, it's basically uh, concentration training. Right. But there's no more questioning of the basic fundamental structures of, of uh, experience itself. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole, the whole setup, like, like when, you, when sometimes when you hear the instructions, uh, for meditation or mindfulness is focus on your breath, watch your breath. Mm -hmm. There's already implicit structures operating right there. Right. I, as the observer, I'm, are watch. I'm, I'm going to watch my breath. <laughs> what what is what's going on there? It's like first of all, we're, we're assuming that there's a a, a bystander or or an observer that's separate from the breath and that owns the breath. Mm -hmm. You know, it's my sense of ownership, and and these kinds of things aren't really uh, questioned in 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 in, in typical uh, secular mindfulness. Uh, right. And and so I think the whole notion of the self as the agent or the doer is something that uh, is up for question. Yeah. Well, it reminds me. It reminds me of uh, especially in relation to when I was just briefly trying your, your time exercise. Is one of my the first meditation practices I was introduced to, um, and again, this was in the style of Ramana Harshi from the beginning. Was you know you sit down, you, you calm yourself, you settle, and, and let the mind come to rest, and then just internally ask yourself, you know, who am I? And mm -hmm. on the moment that that you internally say the word "I," the whole practice was to observe what sensations arise around that. Like, who are you talking to? Who is talking? And right. it's, it's a, like you're saying, it's a questioning of kind of like the imperviousness of, of the stream of consciousness that we're used to, that, that mindfulness might not dig into that deep of kind of accepting that narrative of the eye to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tarthing Tuku talks about the four, the four um, gateways to samsara. Mm. And I think they're I, me, my, and mine. <laughs> In mind, I, me, yeah, I, me, mine, and mind. Yeah. Because a lot of times we say my mind, and we always refer to it as some, some sort of uh, entity. Mm. And I, I think this is also a, maybe an inheritance from the Western Enlightenment notion, where the mind is this interior um space mm -hmm. and uh, so meditation becomes sort of an, an almost a western enlightenment way of um having some so-called objective observation of the interior space mm -hmm. 
And, uh, you know, I think that's what lends itself to the scientific uh, study of meditation is uh, people kind of understand um, the mind in materialistic terms, reductionistic terms. Yeah, this is one of my, my frustrations with a lot of Western philosophy is how much it seeks to objectify and interpret and study and understand without using that understanding to inform some kind of embodied response. Uh, reminds me of Karl Marx. I forget where he said it, but somewhere he says that you know, philosophers have always interpreted the world, but the point is to change it. And you know, this is how I feel about life, that interpretation is only useful in dialogue with embodied action, embodied response. Otherwise, you get this kind of disembodied floating intellect that's not particularly helpful, or that is at least not helping to enrich or progress or, or do anything to the human condition. It's just explaining it. Very disembodied. I think that's a great way of putting it. And, uh, you know, that's the critique that Evan Thompson is making quite strongly. Right. Um, you know, that meditation, well, first of all, it's now meditation is now kind of reduced and equated to mindfulness. And so we look at, uh, you know, scientific studies. We're not just brains, but, it, you know, it's, it's as if we're just brains. Um, mm -hmm. And we're not, yeah. and not looking at the, the embodied nature of, of cognition. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're not looking at the embodied nature, even how social political uh, uh, imaginaries are embodied in ourselves. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking. I keep thinking back to the beginning when you first were describing your experience that that came out kind of out of nowhere. I'm curious. Now it's been a while, you know, decades since. How, do you still? How has that? I don't know if stabilized is the right word, but how has that evolved or changed? I don't want to say over time, but over time. Now, is that a feeling <laughs> that is still somewhat present for you? Is it, is it a, a different relationship to it? Is that old news? Uh, yeah, it's a faded memory, I yeah, think. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a faded memory, but um, I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, of course. That's Be the best things are. <laughs> And uh, for, for anyone else, uh, for anyone tuning in, anyone listening, anywhere you want to point them, where can they go? Where can they grab the book? Where can they kind of get for, more familiar with your work? Sure. I have a website, uh, just runpurser.com, and it has several options where you can get the book. You don't have to be limited to Amazon. <laughs> and um, Or The Mindful Cranks, I my podcast. Uh, so, uh, yeah. All right. Thanks for coming on, Ron. It was a blast. All right. That was Ron Purser. If you'd like to get more familiar with his work, he has a long read essay published in The Guardian called The Mindfulness Conspiracy, and it's a really good sample of his book. Um, and I'll add that along with all kinds of links in the show notes. And if you enjoyed the podcast and feel moved to help it exist, you can head over to patreon.com slash or you can reach it through the uh, podcast website, musingmind.org slash podcast, where even a donation of $1 a month will really help me get this project off the ground and improve production quality and let me shift more time into developing it and making it interesting and valuable and fun. 
Alternatively, there are free methods of support, like rating the podcast on iTunes or just sharing it with a friend. Thank you all for being here, and I'll talk to you next time.